at a very young age, my parents being 15 and 16, realized they could not handle two children. Um, drugs and alcohol, there was a lot of mental and physical abuse and shortly after my brother was born they got divorced and we went to live with my grandmother and our mom just signed her, her rights away completely. When she did that we went to her home one week in the summer and she came and visited us one day on Christmas at our grandmother's house. This particular summer that the story happened on was 13 years old, my brother was 12. My mom, during the time that we had seen her last, had gotten remarried and had a baby. The man who she was married to at the time was an alcoholic. He was very violent and the baby was crying and there was a lot of tension in the room with us being there anyways because we didn't even know him. I went to pick the child up. It was crying and crying and crying and nobody was acknowledging, you know, the baby was crying and that just set him off. I tried to back myself up so he wouldn't hit the baby and he told me to get out of his house that I wasn't welcome there anymore. And I'm like, I'm here to visit my mom, I'm not leaving. So he physically picked me up and tried to throw me out of the house. And when he realized that him being drunk and me being 13, he wasn't going to be able to do that, he commenced to slamming my arm repeatedly in a door trying to break it. Luckily for me, he was drunk, and I was able to push him down and get him off me. And I just turned to my mom, and I'm like, seriously, is this what you're doing right now? And she looked at me with the deadest face and goes, you shouldn't have made him mad. So I just told my dad, we were in the car on the way home, I said, I'm never going back there. She's not my mom. That's, I never even after that day called her by her name again. Fast forward the story a decade later, now I'm married, have two beautiful children. I get a phone call from the state police and said, you need to come home now. And they wouldn't tell me what was going on. My children are gone, my ex-husband is in handcuffs, and nobody will tell me what happened. They leave and about 30 minutes later, an investigator came and told me that Sometime during the day while I was at work, my ex-husband smoked out of a meth pipe, passed out, and the kids got outside and were playing unsupervised. So the neighbors called 911, DFACS came and took my kids, and here I am, early 20s, nowhere to go, and nobody to help me take care of my kids. The judge was like, you have two choices. You can stay married to him and your kids will go into the system, or you can get a divorce and set up residence and we'll let the kids come back home, but there's nothing we can do right now. I was renting from the people who I was working for, so ultimately lost my house, and at one point me and the kids were homeless sleeping in my car. We got into this fantastic apartment complex and we were on a waiting list, that's why we were sleeping in the car, just waiting on that place, and I'm thinking everything is on the upswing, you know, happy days for, for us. Until one day my daughter had a sleepover. The little girl asked my daughter, where's your dad? She was like, I don't have a dad. My dad's never talked to me. I don't even know who he is. And I just hit my face and I'm like, God, what did I do? You know, because I immediately remembered all the anger I felt for my mom. It took about three months to find him. And when he came to visit for the first time, the kids didn't know him. He's been clean and sober now three years and he actually has a relationship with him. And he will even say to this day that the day his children didn't know who he was was the day he decided to clean his life up. I couldn't get past the thing with my mom. I had no idea where she was. This is 23 years. I haven't seen her. I haven't spoke to her. Our own family doesn't even know where she is until the week of my birthday last year. And I get a frantic phone call. What I made out was someone found your mom. She's in the burn unit at Grady Hospital. I wanted to feel hurt or scared or sad, but I had no emotion for her. You know, she was not a part of my life. I walk into this room and she goes, who are you? And I'm like, it's Wanda. And she said, well, that's great. That's my name too. And my, my aunt goes, your daughter? 
And she goes, oh, well, why are you here? And for two hours, I listened to her, and she has a horrible story. She was in a drug-addicted relationship, and she was physically abused, and the man that she was with beat her in the head with a hammer and set her on fire. That's why nobody knew where she was for so long, because she didn't even know who she was. She asked me if she could hug me. And I'm like, sure, I, what do you say? So she hugged me and I heard myself whisper, I forgive you. And I don't know where that came from, because at that point I was still kind of angry. And she kissed me on the cheek and told me she loved me and we left. And I got in the car and I can promise you, I felt this peace. My entire life changed that day. My heart was broken. So I didn't know how to be a good mom because I was always scared I wasn't gonna do the right thing. And I didn't know how to have a relationship with women because I'd never had one before, you know, and just freeing myself from all that. My women's group is thriving, my kids are thriving, and we're just in a really great place now. And it was all from that one little, I forgive you. I want to thank Londa for sharing her story. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to share a story like that. And uh, man, we love Wanda here at Crosspoint. She is serving all the time, investing in the lives of women on our response team. And uh, man, it's just been so cool to watch God work in and through her life. So if you see Wanda around here today, man, thank her for sharing her story and tell her about how much you appreciate her. Uh, her story connects to where we're going in our message today. We are closing out our best sermon ever series, the series we've been in, uh, in which we've studied the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon he's ever preached, and we're closing out this summer's portion of that series today by talking about what it looks like to love our enemies. So if you have a Bible or if you have a device with a Bible app on it, grab that. And I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5. Now, as you're getting there, here's what I want us to do. I want all of us in the room right now to think about someone in our lives that we might consider an enemy. I want you to think about that person. Get them in your minds. Maybe for you, it's somebody like Juan. It's a family member. It's a parent. It's an ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-husband, ex-wife. Uh, maybe for some of you, that enemy in your life, it's a person that you haven't seen for years and years. You don't talk to them anymore. But every time you think about them, man, your blood just boils. And if you're that really, really nice person in the room that just thinks, I could never label anyone my enemy, Listen, just think about that person you have a really hard time with, all right? Who is it that rubs you the wrong way? You just don't really like being around them much. Just, just think about that person, all right? Everybody have somebody in their mind? You thinking about an enemy? All right, well, let's go to Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, and see what Jesus has to say about how we should respond to those people in all of our lives. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen, if you read that and you go, well, Jesus just lost me, right? This was a waste of my time showing up today because this message, there's no way. I, I can't live this out. Listen, if you're taken aback by the words of Jesus, you have to know that, that the crowd who would have been listening to him in Matthew 5, 
they were kind of in the same boat. You see, they held Jesus' listeners to this really unbiblical idea that they were supposed to hate their enemies. And in their minds, their enemies were evil people who didn't believe what they believed, didn't behave how they behaved, who didn't love God, who didn't follow his commands. And the reason they labeled those people as enemies is simple because when they read their Old Testament Bibles, they found all these scriptures that talked about how God hated evil. And so they naturally just thought, well, since God hates evil, he must hate evil people. So, so they assumed based on that, that thought process, we should hate evil people too. I mean, God hates what they do, so he must hate them. And, and we're supposed to hate what they do, so, so we should hate them But the problem with that belief is this. Nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures does God ever command hatred toward evil people. And this is what Jesus is digging into here with this statement. He says, listen, I know you guys have been under the impression all these years that you should love your neighbors. Those people, again, who believe what you believe, behave how you behave, act how you act, you should love them. And when it comes to all those other people in your life who don't measure up to who you think they should be, well, you should hate those people. And then Jesus says, you have to know that you're wrong on that. Instead of hating people that you view to be your enemies, he said, instead, what you need to do is you need to love them and you need to pray for them. So let's not miss this. That person that you have in your mind right now, Jesus wants you to let go of hatred toward that person He wants you to let go of bitterness toward that person. He wants you to let go of anger toward that person. He wants you to resolve unforgiveness that you have stored up in your heart toward that person. He wants you to quit talking poorly behind the backs of that person. He wants you to stop posting rants on social media about whoever that person is in your life. And instead, look, 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 Jesus wants you to love them. And he wants you to make it a point each and every day to pray for them. Now, I would assume that there are some of us sitting in the room again who are thinking, no way. I mean, that's impossible. Jesus must not know who my enemies are because if he did, he wouldn't be asking me to love them. Like, I might be able to pray for them, but if I pray for them, I'm praying they get struck by lightning. Like, there is nothing good coming out of my prayer life for that person. Why would Jesus ask me to do something like that? Well, that's a really great question and one that we need an answer to. And here's the good news. Jesus actually answers that question for us in our passage for today. So let's keep reading and let's find out why we should love our enemies. Now, I'm going to reread part of this verse. Jesus says again, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this next part of the verse is key. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. We're going to come back to that. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So the the answer to this question that we've posed, why should we love our enemies? Well, it's a real simple answer, and here it is. And if you're taking notes, write it down. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we should love our enemies because we serve and we worship a God who loves his enemies. We love our enemies because our God loves his enemies. When Jesus tells us that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven, this is what he's getting at. 
He's reminding us of this big biblical idea that every single one of us in the room was created by God to be an image bearer in this world. In other words, God created you in his image so that you could live a life every day that reflects his character and his nature to the world around you. If you know Jesus, if you're his follower, then you have to understand that the whole goal of your life is to live in such a way that that your conduct preaches the message of God's grace and kindness to every person you come in contact with. As a son or as a daughter, you're called to be like your heavenly father. And in order for you to be like him, guess what you have to do? You have to love your enemies. Why? Because our heavenly father loves his enemies. And Jesus goes on in this passage to make this really clear for us. First, he tells us that God has a general sense of love that he expresses each and every day toward all of his creation. In theology, we would call this common grace. And Jesus explains it like this. He says that God, he makes the sun rise on both the good and on the evil. And he sends rain to the just and the unjust. Here's what Jesus is getting at. He's telling us that it doesn't matter who we are in the room today. Like, it doesn't matter if you walk into this room and you're the most holy, God-loving person that's here today, or if you're the most heathen person, like, you don't even know why you're here. This is a waste of your time. Jesus is saying, God has been good to you. God has been good to you. And God has expressed his love toward you in the small things in life just by making the sun come up and sending rain each day so that you can have food to eat, water to drink. God's showing you his grace in the fact that you are here and you are alive. So if you ever question, does God love me? Just look around. Of course God loves you. He pours his grace out on you each and every day in the smallest but most important of ways. And listen again, back to this passage. You and I, because we understand that God's shown us grace, we have to be willing to do the same for others, no matter if they're our friends or they're our enemies. And let me just say this before we keep going. If you walked into this room today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you just gotta know, man, that God is constantly pouring out his grace and his kindness toward you. He's being patient with you in hopes that you finally come to the place one day where you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and come into a relationship with him. And if you've never done that, man, I pray that today might be that day for you. Now, secondly, Jesus makes the point of God loving his enemies through a simple word choice in this passage. He uses a very specific word for love in verses 43 and 44. In the Greek language, which the New Testament was originally written in, there are four distinct words for love. One is storge. That's love felt by parents toward a child. Uh, There's also a love called phileo. It's a friendship type of love. Eros is a romantic type of love shared between husbands and wives. And then there's agape love. And this is the word that Jesus uses for love in this passage. Agape love is a supernatural love. It's an unconditional love. It's when we choose to love someone, even when that person doesn't deserve to be loved. Agape love is love for absolutely no good reason at all. And church, can we just agree that that's how God has loved every single one of us in the room today? I mean, you know you're not that lovable, right? I mean, you might argue that you are. 
But none of us are that lovable. I mean, I'm being honest with myself as well. None of us have given God a lot of great reasons to love us, but how amazing is it to know that God loves us unconditionally and undeservingly in spite of who we are, who we've been, even who we're gonna be. It's unbelievable to think that God loves us with that kind of love. Um, there's a passage that we've read here before at Crosspoint, Romans 5, but there's no better passage in which we find the agape love of God explained toward us. I want you to listen to what Paul says. He says, for while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But listen to this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, when we were stuck in sin, that's when Jesus came. He took nails for us, suffered beatings for us, hung on a cross, and had all the anger and wrath that, was deserved, or that our sin deserved poured out on him to demonstrate just how much the God of the universe loves us. And Paul says, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, made perfect in the sight of God, that's what that means, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen, I love this. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul's going, if that's what God did for us while we were his enemies, just imagine what God's gonna do for us now that we're his friends. Church, aren't you glad that we serve a God who has loved us while we were at our worst? While you were jacked up, stuck in sin, undeserving, that's when God decided to express his love for you. So much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into this world to move you from enemy status to friend. That's what God has done for us. Now, if you're that person that would say, absolutely, yes, I'm so grateful for how God has loved me even when I was undeserving, even when I was his enemy, then according to Jesus in our passage for today, your natural response as his son or as his daughter should be to show that same kind of agape love to those enemies in your life. We've got to love those people as God has loved us, even when they don't give us reason to, and even when they do things that give us reason not to. We still have to love our enemies. Now, here's the kicker. Jesus says if we're unwilling to do that, we're no better than tax collectors or pagans. He's saying, man, even sinful people who are crazy far from God can love people who are easy to love. And here's what we have to take from that. We have to understand that when we fail to love our enemies, the sons and daughters of God, the way that we love causes us to simply blend in with the world around us. And listen, that's a problem. Because as followers of Jesus, we're not called to blend in with the world around us. We're called to stand out from the world around us. And you see, this is one of the reasons that I think many people outside the walls of churches have such a problem with Christianity. They look at people who, who say they know Jesus, who claim to be his followers, yet those people love no differently than they love. Right? They, they see people who say, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, yet they tear each other down. They talk poorly about people behind their backs. They use their Facebook walls to attack people they don't disagree with. And they go, why would I want a belief system that does nothing to change the way that I live and nothing to change the way that I love? You see, we have to understand that we've been called to so much more than that. We've been called to more than an easy, superficial type of love. You and I, as sons and daughters of God, we've been called to love people even when it's hard. 
even when there's no good reason to do so, even when we disagree with him, even when we don't feel like doing it. And you know why? Because again, that's the way God has loved us. We love our enemies because God loves his enemies and we were once an enemy and now he's made us a friend. We love our enemies because God loves his enemies. Now, secondly, if we're gonna love our enemies based on this understanding that God loves his enemies, here's the second thing we have to understand. We've also gotta understand that loving our enemies is a choice. This is key, right? We cannot miss this. I know some of us are, are thinking probably in our seats, well, well, James, I don't really feel like loving my enemies. And let me just go ahead and tell you, I don't either, nobody does, right? None of us are gonna ever feel like loving those people who are really, really hard to love. And what we have to understand is that, that love is more than just feeling a certain way about someone. Liking is about feelings and emotions. You ever been around that person for like five minutes that you instantly like? I wanna be this person's friend. And then we've all been around that person for five minutes who were like, I need to figure out how to get out of this conversation because, right, this is, this is tough. Um, that's an issue of liking. Liking and disliking people has to do with feelings and emotions. Love is much more than that. You see, love is about exercising the will. Love is about choosing to treat someone well in spite of how you might feel about them. Love is a choice. And loving our enemies, as we see on the screens, it's also a choice. And just this past week, I was confronted with this choice, personally. I won't go into any detail. I'm not going to describe the situation, but... But I faced the circumstances past week in which I had to choose whether or not to get angry at someone who kind of passively, aggressively came at me. And the choice I had to make was this. Am I going to respond? Am I going to react? Am I going to set them straight? Or am I going to let it roll off my back, choose not to be angry, and love and pray for them? And I'll just be honest. There are a lot of emotions wrapped up in it. There were times where I just thought, man, all right, I'm ready, right? I'm, I'm, gonna re- I'm getting on the phone. Like, I'm going to set this person straight. And then I'm outside, middle of the week, working in my yard, and I'm just thinking about the situation. And it was like in that moment, God speaks to me and says, love and pray for them. What are you doing, dude? Like, you're about to get on a stage and preach this week this message about loving and praying for your enemies. Don't be the hypocrite that gets on the stage and tells a bunch of other people to practice what you're not willing to practice, but you're willing to preach. And so I just stopped what I was doing. And I prayed for them. I prayed for blessing in their life. I prayed for favor in their life. And I just chose to do what God had asked me to do, even though I didn't really feel like doing it. You see, going back to God's love for us, I think what makes this choice to love our enemies all the easier is when we understand that God chose to love us and to save us, and there were times where he didn't feel like doing it give you an example. Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus went to the cross. He's in the garden. He's praying. The Bible says he's sorrowful to the point of death. The book of Luke tells us that Jesus was under so much stress that he was literally sweating drops of blood. Real medical condition, hematidrosis. That's what's happening in Jesus' life. And he's praying. He's going, God, if there's any other way, let that way happen. Like, he knows what he's getting ready to face. He knows what what he's going to face at the cross and what he's going to experience for your sin and mine. And he's praying, basically saying to God, I don't feel like doing this. God, is there another option? If there's another way, please let that way happen. Take this cup from me. And then Jesus finally prays, "But, but God, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. 
It's not about my will. It's about your will. And if I need to choose this path, then I'll choose it, even in spite of the fact that I don't feel like choosing it. You see, when you understand that that's how God has loved us, it becomes a lot easier to express that same kind of love for others. When, when you think about your enemy, it becomes a whole lot easier to go, God, I don't feel like doing it, but if this is what you want me to do, I'm gonna choose it. If this is what you want, it's not about my will, it's not about what I want, it's about what you want. And as your son, as your daughter, I know that the purpose of my life is to reflect you to others. And so if that means me loving my enemies, I, I'm in, I'll do it. We choose to love our enemies because God has loved his enemies. Now, if you're wondering what this choice to love your enemies looks like on a really practical level, all right, James, how do I do this? What should this look like? Here's the good news. The Bible actually tells us. And we're gonna read a passage together from Romans 12 in which Paul outlines the choices we make concerning our enemies. So if you wanna go there with me, you can, Romans 12, 17 through 21. Um, if not, then you can follow along on the screens with me. Here's what Paul has to say. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let me show you the choices Paul outlines for us. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's what he has to say. When it comes to loving your enemies, the first thing you do is this. You refuse to repay evil for evil. This was the message that Zach preached last week, right, on, on revenge, on retaliation, when somebody wrongs you, when they slap you in the face, when they speak poorly, when they sue you, when they try to take advantage and rob you of time, right? Don't repay evil for evil. Don't seek out revenge. Don't think that it's your job to get them back for whatever they've done to you. You let it go, and instead you love them and pray for them. Second thing, do what's honorable. And, and I love the first part of that verse. It actually says, give thought to do what is honorable. Can I just say this? If you want to love your enemies, you have to leave your brains on. Give thought to do what is honorable. I said this when I preached on anger earlier in this series, and I'll say it, say it again. Anger, when you're angry at somebody, you can do some really dumb and dishonorable things, can't you? So if, listen, if you can stop long enough when your enemy wrongs you, posts that rant about you, speaks poorly about you behind your back, if you can stop long enough to just turn your brain on and think, it will make all the difference in the world. And here's what you need to think about. How can I respond and how can I react in a way that is honorable? How can I respond in a way that reflects the character and nature of God to this person who I consider an enemy? Instead of just reacting and responding and then acting in a way that's dishonorable, and dishonoring to God. So again, leave your brains on and think about what can I do that's honorable? Well, I should probably keep my mouth shut and not post that on Facebook and, and, and maybe go a different route to choose the honorable thing. When you answer those questions for yourself, then act accordingly. Now, the next thing, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. Uh, I know some of us in the room like to stir up drama, don't we? We're controversy people. We love to fight, love to pick fights. Well, Paul's going, when it comes to loving your enemies, you can't be that way. 
right? As followers of Jesus, we should never be that way. Instead, we should be the people constantly, even regarding our enemies, who are putting out fires, who are calming drama down, who are seeking peace in place of conflict, right? So when your enemy's coming at you and trying to stir something up, you know what you do? You're the peacemaker. That's your job. You're the peacemaker. You kill the drama. You kill the controversy. You ensure that it stops with you. That's what Paul's saying here. You love your enemy in that way. Um, the next thing, this is huge. Please don't miss this. You want to love your enemy? You got to trust God as your defender. You see, I think one of the reasons some of us in the room have a hard time loving our enemies is because we feel like it's our job when our enemies come at us, when they, when they say things about us that are, that are wrong, when they speak poorly of us, we feel like it's our job to defend ourselves. Well, I gotta speak up, I gotta set the record straight, I have to avenge myself, I've gotta vindicate myself. But as Paul points out, what the Bible says is this, that's not your job, that's God's job. God promises to defend his sons and daughters against their enemies. That's good news, isn't it? He tells us that our job instead is to trust him as our defender and to love our enemies. And so for some of us, it starts with that. Well, God, I'm just going to trust you to start having my back. I didn't even realize you had my back like that. But now that I know I'm going to trust you, I won't feel the need any longer to defend myself, and I'll just let you defend me. God promises to do that for you if you'll quit defending yourself and allow him to do what he's promised. The next thing and the last thing, and this is really hard, meet your enemy's needs. Jesus says, you see your enemy in need? Meet the need. That person you can't stand if they're hungry, buy them lunch. Right? If they're at the vending machine and their dollar's not working and you got a brand new crisp one, put your dollar in the machine and buy them a Coke. Right? If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. I mean, that could look like if your enemy lost their job, but why don't you help pay the bills for a month? If your enemy doesn't have any place to go, why don't you invite them to come stay in your house for a few nights? That's hard stuff, isn't it? But Jesus is saying, if you have an opportunity to serve your enemy, to meet your enemy's needs, then you do that in order to love them. This is what Paul is teaching here. And he says that by choosing to love our enemies in this way, it's like we're pouring burning coals onto their heads. Now that's a really weird statement, but if you study the scriptures, you find that burning coals, they're a symbol of repentance. And so the point that Paul's trying to make is this. He's saying we should love our enemies in this way in hopes that they will eventually be ashamed of how they're living and acting toward us. They'll come to a place of repentance for all their sins and put their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord and have their lives changed by him. That's the hope. And as I was studying for this message, I came across a quote in one of my commentaries that hit me really, really hard on this point. And I want you to listen to this. I'm going to show it to you. It's by a pastor named James Boyce. He says, you are the closest some men and women will ever get to Jesus Christ. If they do not see Christ's love in you, they will never see it. Knowing that that's true, let me ask you this question. What's most important? What's most important? You defending yourself, you repaying evil for evil, you attacking those who attack you and doing all that stuff so that you can feel better about yourself at the end of the day, what's most important? That or you showing Christ-like love to your enemies in hopes that they find their way back to God. The same God who loves you just like he loves them. The same God that has changed your life and has the power to radically change the lives of your enemies. Church, what's most important? What's most important? 
You see, if you know and love Jesus, your answer to that question has to be the latter. You have to care more about your enemy seeing Jesus in you than you care about defending and avenging yourself. Because here's the truth. None of us in this room know if anybody else is ever gonna love our enemies in such a way that the love of Christ is reflected to them so that they understand there's a God who loves them and what we can't do is wait around for somebody else to do what Jesus has already asked us to do on their behalf. Church, we love and pray for our enemies for their good and for their benefit and in hopes that they meet the God that we know. That's why we love them and that's why we pray for them. Now, as we get ready to close, I want us to go back to our passage, Matthew 5, and we're gonna read the very last verse in this passage. It's a big one. We could spend a whole morning just on this one verse, but we we don't have have time for that, so I'm gonna make it as simple as I can. Here's what Jesus says to close out this passage. You, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. That's big, right? God, your father, he's perfect, so it's his sons and daughters. You should be perfect. You should be perfect. And if you're going, James, that's impossible. You're getting it. That's Jesus's point, right? With a statement like this, he's forcing us to depend on God. he's He's doing for us what he's done for us this entire passage, this whole series. He's moving past our outward behavior, and he's trying to get at our hearts and he's calling us to something impossible so that we can understand without God we'll never attain it. And so here's what we gotta understand from this verse. The goal of the Christian life, church, is perfection. You get that, right? That's the goal. That's the whole goal. But it's not a perfection based in self-righteousness. We're not chasing down a perfection um, founded in how good we can all follow a bunch of rules. We're chasing down a perfection that results from true inward heart change that's made only possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And and then that inward heart change creates within us a desire to live in obedience to all the commands of God out of our love from him. And so as Jesus teaches through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he's reminding us of. Don't be angry, give up lust, right? Guard your marriage, be salt and light, Love your enemies. Don't seek revenge. You should be striving for perfection here. And what he's telling us is this, is that the more we depend on God and the more we we live out uh, obedience to his commands, the more over time we become like him. And the more we become like him, the more perfect we become. You know why? Because he's perfect. And here's what that means in relation to our message for today. It means that our pursuit of perfection as sons and daughters of God demands that we love our enemies and that we pray for them. And so guess how we're gonna close our service today? We're gonna take time right now to pray for our enemies as an expression of love toward them. And you already have them on your minds because I asked you to think about them right out of the gate. You have them on your hearts. And so we're gonna pray for them today by name in this place. So I just want to invite you all over the room just to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And I'm going to kind of direct us and lead us through this prayer time. And I'm going to tell you specifically what to pray for. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, first off, I want you to start by just praying for your heart right now. I just want you to pray for you. Pray that God would change your heart toward that person and help you to love them. Pray specifically 
that God would help you to do the things that we've talked about concerning your enemies, that you wouldn't repay evil for evil, that you do what's honorable, that you choose peace. Pray that God would help you to trust him as your defender. And if there's opportunities to meet your enemy's needs, pray that God would give you the strength and grace you need to do that. But pray for your heart and ask God to help you to love that person. Secondly, I'm going to ask you right now to pray for your enemy by name. Pray God's blessing and favor in their life, no matter what they've done to you, no matter how they've treated you. Pray that if they don't know Jesus, pray that God would somehow intervene in their lives, reveal their need for Jesus to them, and that he would change them and that he would save them. Pray for your enemy by name that God would do something in their lives that only he can do. with that person in your life. And I know that some of us, we may never cross paths again with those people in our lives that are our enemies. Maybe for some of us, we just don't need to for safety reasons. I don't know. But pray again that somehow, some way, that God might give you a unique opportunity to show and to share the love of Christ with that enemy in your life.
God, we, we just want to say to you in this moment, God, with all honesty, God, that, that this message, this passage of Scripture, God, it's too hard for us on our own. So, God, we're, we are, are confessing our need for you, our dependency on you. God, we know that we can't choose to love our enemies. God, unless you do something in our hearts and lives, God, that helps us to do that. And so, God, we're asking for, for the help of your Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We're throwing ourselves on your grace, on your mercy, on your strength, on your power. God, and we're asking you to help us to love our enemies in the same way that you've loved us. God, I just pray for the people in the room, God, that, that right now, God, are just struggling because what they faced is so extreme, so great, and they just don't know how they're going to do this. I just pray, God, that you would just, just draw near to them. God, speak to their hearts, comfort them. God, offer them the hope and the help that they need. God, we're just trusting you for that. God, we love you more than we can express in words. God, and we thank you for the great way that you love us. God, and, and we're so thankful that you allow us to share your love with other people, God, that, that we come in contact with every day. God, help us to do that well as your sons and daughters. God, we love you, and we pray all this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.